Exodus chapter 26, beginning at verse 31. You shall make a veil of woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim, angelic beings. You shall hang it upon the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. I want to speak to you today about the veil. God bless you. You may be seated. God's plan from the beginning was to have close fellowship with a people that he had created in his own image and after his likeness. In the Garden of Eden, the Lord came calling for Adam and Eve. In the cool of the day, Abraham was called a friend of God. Moses spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Sin separated man from God and we had no access into the presence of Almighty God. We were separated from Him by our sins. In the design of the Old Testament house of worship, there were reminders of this separation. There were partitions, dividers. There was this veil. God gave Moses the tabernacle plan in the mountain, the same place He had given him the Ten Commandments. The tabernacle was a portable church that traveled with Israel through their wilderness wanderings. The central idea of this structure that God had given Moses was, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. I I want to be with my people. That was my design from the beginning. I want to dwell with my people. The tabernacle was the dwelling place of Almighty God in the middle of His people. It was called the Tent of Meeting. The tabernacle was built according to this pattern that God had given Moses in the mountain. This center of worship was in the center of God's people. It was in the middle of Israel's encampment. They camped all around the tabernacle. It wasn't on the periphery of their encampment was it on the north, south, east, or west? It was dead set in the middle of where they camped to remind them that God is always to be in the center of your life, never in the circumference of your life. God was the one around whom their lives revolved. And the tabernacle was always pitched facing the east toward the sun rising in such a way to me to say that God is always pointing toward a new day and toward the future for his people. Now, biblical dimensions are given in cubits, C-U-B-I-T-S, and there are various ideas of the length of a cubit 
I'm going to use 18 inches in translating some of these dimensions into our English measurements. The tabernacle was 150 feet long, 75 feet wide. When you entered into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise, you first encountered an imposing brass altar, a brazen altar. It was that place of sacrifice where animals gave their lives and shed their blood as an act of repentance of appeasing the wrath of God. This brazen altar was an important piece of furniture and it was there that blood would be collected that would be then sprinkled throughout the the tabernacle as the priest would make his way toward the presence of God. We believe that this brazen altar is symbolic of repentance, of a death to sin, to self, and to the world. The next significant piece of furniture after the brazen altar was a, a laver of water, a baptistry, a place of ceremonial washing. We believe that water baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins is typified by that, that laver of water that was there. And then there was an enclosure in the tabernacle. Inside the tent was another tent, all completely closed off. It contained two rooms. The first was the holy place and then the most holy place. This entire enclosure was about 45 feet long, not about in God's mind, but because we're not sure of a cubit, 45 by 15 feet wide. The holy place, this first area, was 30 feet long by 15 feet wide. And the most holy place, a cube, 15 by 15, 10 cubits according to their measurement. When you went into the holy place, it is also referred to as the first tabernacle, this entrance there was covered by a veil. You would go through a veil, a curtain, before you could get in there. On the right-hand side, facing north, was the table of showbread, 12 loaves of bread that were replaced once a week by the priest. There were dishes and spoons and other articles that they would use in their priestly duties that were there. On the left-hand side, on the south side, it would be this way, there was the lampstand and seven different divisions, the seven spirits of Almighty God. God's uh, perfection is indicated there. And then directly in front, the showbread, the the lampstand, is, is a small altar of incense that was there, prayer and worship. I, I preached about this altar of incense not long ago, just a few weeks ago. Small altar overlaid with gold, sweet-smelling incense was given up to the presence of Almighty God. Now, the incense was ignited by a coal that came all the way back from that brazen altar. It occurred to me, and I said it at the prayer conference this week that we had for our district, that high praise is always born of deep prayer. And praise that doesn't come out of a right relationship with God 
is lip service. It's really not a sacrifice of praise that comes out of a right relationship. You may remember two men, Nadab and Abihu, who offered on their censers worship to God that was called strange fire. It was ignited by some common coal from an ordinary fire, not off a coal or a fire of consecration. And they died before the Lord for offering strange fire. This altar of incense was a very sacred thing. Beyond that altar of incense was the most holy place, the holiest of holies. But but you couldn't just walk right in there. There was a thick veil that separated these two rooms. Only one man could enter the most holy place only one time a year on the Day of Atonement. There was one main object inside the most holy place that is called the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid within and without with pure gold. Its molding, its rings were of gold. The staves were overlaid with gold that would pass through those wings. Over that Ark of the Covenant, the covering it was called the mercy seat, and it was also one piece covered with gold. On each end of this Ark of the Covenant, not particularly large, a little over a yard wide, were two cherubim, angelic beings, with their wings outstretched, and they were bending over, looking down into this mercy seat. It was on this mercy seat where the blood would eventually make its final place of of splattering there all the way from the brazen altar, the, the laver inside the holy place into the most holy place. And these angels desiring the, the Hebrews would write of this desire to look into this gospel. What what does this mercy seat really mean? This Ark of the Covenant symbolized the presence of God. And it occupied this most holy place. Inside that Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments that God had given Moses. There were times that inside the Ark was also Aaron's rod that budded, symbolizing God's power or the miraculous. And at times inside the Ark of the Covenant was a golden pot of manna, symbolizing God's provision for his people. This mercy seat, the place that I mentioned where where blood was applied all the way through. People ask, where was the blood applied? The blood is applied all the way through, but the process of propitiation or satisfying the wrath of God, the process of forgiveness was not complete until the blood landed on the mercy seat and the Lord said, "It is. I will meet you there. I'm not going to meet you with the brazen altar, the labor of water. I'm not going to meet you in the holy place. I'm not meeting you at the table of showbread. I'm not meeting you at that golden candlestick. I'm not meeting you at incense. I'm meeting you inside the most holy place where the blood finds mercy of God. The presence of the Lord, more than one place in the Bible, said he dwells between the cherubim. He dwells over this mercy seat. We know that God inhabits the heavens of heavens, but symbolically he wanted Israel to know that that I am at a place of holiness. I am at a place of purity. I'm at a place where the blood covers your sins. On this day of atonement, he dwells among or between 
the cherubim. It's always fascinated me that inside the Ark of the Covenant was the law of God that demanded righteousness, that demanded the holiness, the holy standard of God. But above the law was mercy. The mercy seat where the blood was applied did not do away with the law, but it satisfied the demands of the law. So it is mercy over the law. And aren't you glad that when you could not live up to the righteousness of God, that he clothed you with his righteousness, that the blood was applied to your life. It was mercy over the law. In Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, the veil that hung between the holy place And the most holy place is mentioned 23 times. This veil was made of fine twine linen, colors of blue and purple and scarlet. And embroidered in the curtain were these cherubim, these angelic beings that just showed that this was a a heavenly place. To, To a Jew, when that high priest once a year went into the most holy place. He was entering into heaven, heavenly places, right? It was something very special to them. And and that, that great veil that hung there reminded them that you were about to go into the very presence of God. As Israel traveled through their journeys, each time they would pack up the tent, they would take the veil and they would wrap it over the Ark of the Covenant before it made its journeys. Now, this veil is called the veil of the testimony, and it's referred to as the veil which was before the testimony. The writer of Hebrews gives a little summary of this entire place, Hebrews 9, that indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary, this tabernacle. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the show, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And the writer said, of these things, we cannot speak now in detail. He said, I don't really have time to go into all the intricacies of the tabernacle, but you can go back and read it for yourself in the Old Testament. Now, when these things had been thus prepared... The priest always went into that first part of the tabernacle performing the services. They could go to the table of showbread. They could go by the menorah. They could go by that lampstand. But into the second part, the holiest of holies, the the most holy place, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood. It didn't matter how good of a man he was. It didn't matter if he was the best, most morally pure man in the world. 
our righteousnesses are but filthy rags, right? And, and sin has separated us from God. So this high priest who goes in once a year cannot go in by his own merits. He goes in with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. He went in and he offered this blood for himself. And for the people's sins committed in ignorance, the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. We didn't understand how to really get there while the first tabernacle was still standing. Fascinating, the book of Hebrews. This veil, it really served to separate man from the holy presence of God. You and I, we could have never gone there. You Gentile, most of us. You dog to the Jews, right? You don't even, you're not even worthy to come past in the temple later, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women. You're not even able to go where the Jews go, much less where the high priest goes. One man, once a year, on the day of atonement, at atonement at one mint where God made peace with man. Now, the tabernacle served its purpose and later Solomon built a magnificent temple to God. It was now a permanent place of worship and it was magnificent. I will not go into the amazing billions of dollars that it would be valued at. I, I have before several years ago. This tabernacle inside the holy place and most holy place would have been 60 feet long and 30 feet wide. And its walls were lined with cedar and carved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers that were all overlaid with gold. At the back of Solomon's temple, this holy of holies, the form of a perfect cube, uh, each side 30 feet. The interior was lined with cedar overlaid with pure gold. And the Holy of Holies contained two cherubim of olive wood, each 15 feet tall and 15 feet each of their wings spread tip to tip so that over the mercy seat their wings would touch the edges of the most holy place. They were there looking down into the mercy seat. And before you could get in there was the veil. This veil of variegated linen separating the holy place from the most holy place and from the rest of the temple. Second Chronicles 3.14 tells us, and he made the veil of purple, this is Solomon, of blue, purple, crimson, and fine linen, and he, and he wove cherubim into it. It would have been large enough to cover the entrance of the most holy place, at least 30 feet wide, at least 30 feet tall, thick enough to be opaque where you cannot see through it to the glory of God. Solomon's temple, the center of Jewish worship all over the world until it was ransacked and destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. 70 years later, a number of Jews returned to Israel led by the prophets Ezra and by Nehemiah and the second temple was built on that same sacred site. Sacrifices to God were once again resumed 
over time, the temple fell into decline and decay. decay. But, but five years or so before the birth of Jesus Christ, Herod, the Roman-appointed governor over that area, decided to renovate and restore the temple five years before Jesus was born. He made substantial modifications to the temple mount, the surrounding mountain. He enlarged and expanded the temple. It would never approach the glory of Solomon's temple in terms of gold and expense, but, but it was there. The dimensions were similar. Herod's temple, as I mentioned, did not match the magnificence of Solomon's, but, but it was a temple nonetheless. It's fascinating to me that there was no Ark of the Covenant inside Herod's temple. There was just a place. One commentary said there was a rock there, but, but nonetheless, it was the most holy place, and it was symbolic of entering into heaven. Herod's temple was the universal place for all Jews around the world in the days of Jesus Christ. Jesus went to the temple. Remember at 12, he was there confounding all of the scholars with asking them questions and answering them. That's where Jesus' family would go once a year to worship and he would go there annually. But in Herod's temple, there was also a veil just as it was in the tabernacle, just as it was in Solomon's temple. And it, it was the divider. It separated man from God. It separated you from going into the presence of God. There's been a lot of speculation. I've done a lot of reading about this veil this week. And you know, how wide was it really? At least 30 feet. How tall was it really? 30 feet most likely. How thick was that veil? Now this is where you get into tradition and preaching that we've heard once, you know, along the way through our lives. But there is some reliable tradition that says that the veil was a hand's breadth. It was thick as the width of a man's hand or four inches thick. That really cannot be held up by the Bible except to say that this was a very large curtain. I've read that when it was soiled, it would take anywhere from 200, I've read that, to 300 priests to take it down and to wash it and cleanse it. And there were dozens and dozens of ladies that would make the veil when it had to be replaced. This was an imposing veil that was there between the holy place and the most holy place. But something happened to that veil. at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. The Bible said that when Jesus was crucified, that they did not take his life from him, that he laid it down himself. In his final seconds on the cross, Jesus cried with a loud voice. If you put the gospels together, it was not a, a groan of a dying man, it was a shout of triumph. In the Greek, megaphone, it was like a megaphone. John said, he shouted, it is finished. Finished, finished was a Greek word used in commercial life. It signified the completion of a transaction by full payment of a price. It was the discharging of a debt. It was the completion of a payment. Every sin 
incurs a debt that a sinner owes to God. And that debt must be discharged. It must be paid before we can be accepted by God. Every animal sacrifice. On the day of atonement and throughout Israel's history, all it did is roll ahead. It was a recognition that we owe God for our sins. And on the, on the day of atonement, he would postpone full payment of the debt. It was the anticipation of the coming of God in flesh that the Lamb of God would take away the sins of the world. And all throughout the ages, this accumulated death was laid on Jesus Christ on his cross when he shed his blood and he shouted with a loud voice, it is finished. It is paid in full. The Bible is clear about the price that Jesus paid. And neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered and once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Christ, Hebrews 9.28 said, was offered, was once offered to bear the sins of many. Hebrews 10.10, we've been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And the apostle Peter wrote that we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ was at the same time our high priest and our sacrificial lamb. He went into the holy place with his own blood and he is our mercy seat. He is the altar that appeased the wrath of God. It is finished. And it happened on his cross. He paid the debt in full. Once for all times, and after Jesus had shouted, it is finished, and Luke said, he prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He breathed his last breath and died. You may remember that Pilate was surprised that he was dead already because crucifixion was torturous. It would drag on for days. The legs of the thieves had to be broken so they would submit to death, but not Jesus Christ. He committed into the hands of Almighty God his spirit as a man, the Lamb of God. At that instant, as he died, back inside the city of Jerusalem, inside Herod's temple, past the brazen altar, past the laver of water, past the holy place, past the showbread, past the lamp, past the altar of incense. There, there was the imposing curtain. And the Bible said in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. I don't know exactly what it looked like, but this veil that could not be pulled apart by man, it was not torn from top to bottom. You cannot find a way to get to God, but God found a way to get to you. 
God made a way by coming from heaven to earth and from top to bottom that veil was rent in half and it opened for us an access into a place we had never been before we could never get there but now we can go by the blood of Jesus Christ into the presence of almighty God into heaven itself would you take a moment and thank him for his blood would you thank him that he tore the veil and made a way Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren and sisters, having boldness to enter the holiest. Now, I know you see with, by the blood of Jesus Christ, but the priest did not go in there with boldness. The high priest, you know, with bells, just in case he died, they could drag him out. You didn't walk in there real cocky. You know, you went in there with blood. You were wanted to be covered by the blood. But now, the writer of Hebrews says that we can have boldness. We don't have to be tentative, afraid, or worried by boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. In other words, the real veil was the flesh of Jesus Christ that was torn on the cross, releasing his precious blood that would wash away every sin. The writer of Hebrews said, in having a high priest over the house of God. Here's the message today. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The veil in the temple that was torn from top to bottom was symbolic of what took place on the cross, the torn flesh of Jesus Christ that gave us access to him. My message today is that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh. The blood of Jesus Christ has made you free. Why don't you worship him right now? The veil was not torn to let God out. The veil was torn to let us in. That's why sometimes kind of prod you a little bit to worship. You don't have to be on the outside looking in. You don't have to be numb and dumb to the presence of God just need to ask him to forgive you of your sins. For if we confess our sins, he 
is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The devil is the accuser of the brethren and the sisters, but Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. So if you've been feeling isolated, alienated from the presence of God, I wanted you to know that Jesus Christ made a way for you. He made the way for you. That you don't have to be separated from God by your sins, not one more minute. You may feel unworthy, and you certainly are, and I certainly am. I'm not worthy because I'm a pastor or because I'm a licensed minister. I'm not worthy because of anything that I have done. I'm only worthy because I go in with blood. Like the priest, he couldn't go in on his own merits, but he had to go in with blood. But when I go into the presence of Almighty God, into the heavenly place, He has raised us up to sit together in heavenly places. That holiest of holy was symbolic of heaven itself. I go in covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads right now? I'm overwhelmed by your great plan. The genius, O Lord, of what you saw. For you were the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And every piece of furniture, every detail of that tabernacle of Solomon's temple of Herod's temple, Lord, was designed to preach to us that you made a way for us to come to you. I thank you, Lord, that you demonstrated to the entire world when you breathed your last breath that God has opened the door of access to the world. I pray for people who don't feel like they have a pedigree, that they feel unworthy. I pray today, Jesus, that you would help everyone know that you paid the debt for the sins of the whole world. And because we have boldness, that we can go through the veil by the blood of Jesus Christ, we can draw near. And I pray, Jesus, that today you would forgive sins as we ask. As we turn from our sins, that you would forgive us. I pray for the person today, maybe they're watching online, perhaps they're in the house today, that is feeling the weight of condemnation knowing they don't measure up. I pray right now, Lord, that you would forgive us of our sins so that we can come into your holy presence.